Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and welcome to this little bonus edition of Grass Talk Radio. I hope everyone is doing well and staying busy. I know that right now there aren't a lot of jam sessions and there aren't a lot of festivals and workshops and yeah, I don't even know if you can take private lessons these days. <laughs> Who knows? Um, so, first of all, I wanted to tell you that I've been just busy. There's always things to do here around the old farm and stuff. I've been gardening like crazy, and that's looking good. I always have endless lawn mowing. And I've been digging through boxes, just looking through stuff. And... I've always said I think it's important to write your ideas down and to maintain a notebook or a series of notebooks or a pile of stuff or whatever because you can go back and you can see something that you did a while ago and you go, wow, I forgot all about that. That's pretty good. Well, I was digging around in a box and I came up with a little booklet that I produced in 1988. And for those uh, mandolin players in the audience who have the mandolin handbook, you've seen the cartoon that says how to recognize a type 1 mandolin player and how to recognize a type 2 mandolin player. That cartoon I just inserted in there as filler. That is the final page. It originally came from this little book, which I'm rattling the pages of right now. This little booklet that I produced for a mandolin workshop. And what I want to do today, I want to do really two things. The first thing I want to do is just talk a little bit about workshops. What are they? Uh, pros and cons about various types of workshops and, and this sort of thing. Because, you know, the workshop has been around a long time in the bluegrass world. I, I've got old photographs of, you know, Bill Monroe doing a mandolin workshop at some, you know, early bluegrass festival and all the people crowding around looking at him, got their little tape recorders and their microphones and he's sitting there with the big horn rim glasses on and playing through some stuff and you've probably seen those pictures and or perhaps have been there and been involved in these sort of things. And basically, you know, at its most rudimentary uh, definition, a workshop is one of the singers or instrumentalists will, at a show, in between their sets, at some point in the schedule, they will uh, just do a little session where they just sit in a chair and the people sit around them, a little crowd gathers around them, and they play and they talk and they answer questions from the people who are listening. I mean, that's the gist of a workshop because you can't, you can't go up you know, in the middle of Sam Bush's set and go, hey, Sam, whoa, 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 dude, what was that you just played? You know, now you probably wouldn't even do that in a workshop, but after he played it, you could say, hey, whoa, whoa, hey, I got a question. And put your hand up and he'll say yes. And then 
you'll ask your dumb question, you know? So that was the point of a workshop, to try to um, allow the fans, and in particular people who are learning to play, a chance to rub shoulders with the performers and to ask questions and, in theory, get them answered, you know, and to learn a little something. It helps spread the music. So that's the basic gist of a workshop. Now, I've been in, involved in these type of, usually they're instrument-based workshops. It'll be a mandolin workshop, a banjo workshop, a guitar workshop, a bass workshop, a bluegrass vocals workshop, these sort of things. Often they're rolled into the promotion of a festival. So you go into this little bluegrass festival and they've got, let's say, two headliner acts or four headliners and then filled out the schedule with regional and local acts. Just, you know, your average small festival. And part of the deal will be oftentimes the promoter will say to the performer, well, uh, you know, I would like your banjo player to participate in this banjo workshop, or I would like your banjo player to just do a banjo workshop. Could we work that out too? We'll pay him, you know, pay him an extra hundred bucks uh, to do a banjo workshop Saturday morning at 10 o'clock under the little tent next to the uh, place where you buy biscuits or something, you know. And so they'll set up these little stages. Usually it takes place in the morning because the bands are on stage doing their big, big time performances and stuff in the evenings and throughout the day. But in the morning, you know, there's not a lot going on. So this is a good thing the promoter can put on his schedule and say, Oh, uh, so-and-so will be doing a mandolin workshop at 10 o'clock on Saturday morning. Or there will be a bluegrass vocal workshop Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, you know. And so if you're trying to learn and you know who these people are, you go, wow, I want to go to that festival because I definitely want to go to that workshop because then I can sit 10 feet away from Joe Blow and ask him questions and, you know, talk to him and stuff like this. So workshops are used by promoters to draw people to their festivals and shows. I've seen shows, um, just standalone shows where a band is going to play at, you know, from eight to 11 at a place, you know, a place like the red light or the freight room in Atlanta, whatever. And oftentimes one of those players or more multiple members of the band might have a workshop that afternoon, like 3.30 or, you know, 5 o'clock. There's going to be a banjo workshop where your banjo hero, he's just going to sit with a bunch of banjo players, you know, before he goes to supper and then comes back and plays the show. And it's a, it's a great way for performers to pick up a little extra dough, and it's a great way for we who are trying to learn to do this sort of thing to ask questions up up close actually get to meet these people and so on sometimes they charge for this you know they might do a you know a pre-show early in the day type of workshop where you have to pay 10 bucks or 20 bucks or something and you buy a ticket to be in the workshop or sometimes they're just put on like at a festival they're usually just open to the any ticket holder can go to any workshop. 
So that's the basic gist of a workshop. Now, my experiences, I've been on both sides of the workshop stage. I've plenty of times been in the audience, either sitting in a chair or standing around the fringes of a tent. As an audience member, as a, you know, a uh, participant in the workshop, I have also been on the other side of that, where I've been like giving the workshop. I've been the mandolin player doing a mandolin workshop, that type of thing where our band was hired and they said, hey, can can Jimmy, can you do a banjo workshop? And Brad, would you do a mandolin workshop at, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning on Saturday or what, you know, whatever. And you work these little details out. So I've, I've been to many of these, um, just to give you a kind of a broad spectrum of them. Uh, one that I particularly remember was, I wanna say 1996 at Merle Fest where I was just a, a member of the cattle, the, you know, the ticket buying, I was not performing. I bought a ticket, you know, and they checked your cooler before you went in and you had to stand behind this rope and that rope and this particular color ticket got you into here and this and this. And you're, you know, you herded around like cattle. And uh, for me, I don't really enjoy that sort of thing as much because I've been on the other side of the rope, which you're not allowed to cross. And I much prefer it on the other side. I like, you know, the backstage scene a whole lot better than on the front side. I guess what I'm saying is I'm probably not a very good audience member. I just, I don't know. I just don't enjoy being out in the audience as much as, as I did, let's say in the first five years or so that I was really, you know, getting into bluegrass. I was, I was an audience dude, but then as you got more on stage, I became less interested in sitting out in hot sun, you know, with a crowd of people and I just wanted to be up there doing it. So I've been on both sides, but this particular Merle Fest, they had, oh, they have so many stages. And by 96, I think we played there, Cedar Hill played there the first time in 86, I think. It was still fairly small. I think maybe 10,000 people, which is small for that thing. And we played, we played on, they had three stages at that time. We played on the kid stage, which was a railroad caboose. We're kind of in the middle of the, this little garden of the senses or something area. And then they had what was the log cabin stage and then they had the main stage. We played all of those stages over the course of the weekend. Um, I, I don't know, maybe once each stage something like that. And they may have had some workshop tents. I don't recall it from way back then, but so I go back 10 years later and in 96, I just buy a ticket and I go and I'm wandering around and now they're up to eight or 10 stages all over the place and lots of rules. And it was very difficult to, uh, rub shoulders with any of the performers unless you went to one of these workshops. So I got wind that there was a mandolin workshop and it was down on, I think they called it the Creekside or something. It was like about a 30 by 30 tent, kind of way away from the stage down in the corner of the, of the property there. So there's going to be this mandolin workshop. You got people like 
Bush and Grisman and Chris Thiele and Roland White and I can't remember who all and probably a guitar player. I think maybe David Greer was playing guitar or something. Somebody to back him up, you know. And uh, make my way down there. I'm not kidding. There were 250 people crowded around this workshop. And, you know, they got a little platform and they got like these six mandolin players all sitting there in folding chairs and a couple of mics. Maybe I guess they had a PA. I don't, I don't remember now. Maybe they didn't have a PA. I think they did. I think there was a small PA set up down there. And you couldn't even get it. You couldn't even get close enough. You certainly weren't going to interact or ask any questions. I mean, some of the people that got there like the night before and just, you know, parked their lawn chair right there so that they wouldn't miss it. Uh, maybe got to ask a question or something, but that sort of workshop just didn't do it for me because, I mean, it was cool to see them all play. Okay, let's all play red-haired boy. And they all go down the line playing red-haired boy and go around and they make a couple of funny jokes and blah, 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 you know. It's like a little mini show. It wasn't really a workshop where you could learn anything except perhaps learn a little about these people's personalities and learn a little bit about their personal style of how they play or how aggressive they are or are they funny or are they just deadpan. You know, you could learn things about them that you wouldn't necessarily see in their typical stage persona presentations, you know. So they all come together. And, you know, these type of workshops that I've seen often the audience is just packed with fans. They're not really the, the insider. Like, this is a bunch of mandolin players. You would think the audience would be packed with mandolin players. But often it's not. When you've got 10,000 fans hanging around a festival and they hear about the, you know, there's going to be a mandolin workshop, they all just swarm down there and sit. And what they really want is another show, a different version, a different type of entertainment. And there'll be mandolin players dotted in amongst them who are interested in asking questions and learning a little something, you know. But they often just turn into, those big, massive ones at big festivals turn into these little kind of, they're fun, interesting kind of little mini shows in a kind of a different format, you know. And I, re I remember at that particular one, I had a backpack on which had, you know, water and some food and crap and stuff in this little backpack that I had to wear because once you got in, it was such an ordeal. You couldn't just go in and out. I was camped down the road a ways behind a Masonic Lodge. It was like, Ten bucks a night, you get a campsite. Had a tent pitched over there. And you'd have to walk way all the way around, go through the, run the gauntlet, and get your bags checked and all this stuff, which I really don't enjoy. Um, so I got this backpack. And so I'm trying to weasel my way up near this mandolin workshop stage. And you can tell that the crowd is really more a fan crowd, not really like mandolin player crowd, you know? Although I know there were some of us in there. You might have been there. You might have been in that crowd. And there were people who had parked their lawn chairs there well in advance, you know, and they were sitting down, but most people were standing. And I'm 
just kind of easing my way up in there. And some guy sitting in a lawn chair behind me starts yanking on my backpack. And I turn around, I go, what? He's like, you're blocking my view. Your backpack, backpack's blocking my view. I just turn around, I didn't say nothing to him. I mean, the mantle players were spread out, you know, 20 feet wide across. I couldn't see half of them. You know, I'm sorry, dude, like I, I'm just standing here, you know, hey, you know, sorry. Anyway, I kind of got out of there and went off to way off in the fringes and they put on this, you know, little entertaining little mandolin type workshop and it was really cool, you know, to see these people all trying to outdo one another or some of them seemed kind of glum like, I don't really want to be here. <laughs> I'm not going to mention any names. <clears throat> But oftentimes these things get a little competitive and they're super fun for the type A's that are putting this group uh, Mando Madness on and they're all having a blast. And some of the people you can tell are like, God, how did I get roped into this? You know, I mean, literally some of the players you could see on their face s saying to themselves, God almighty, why did he have to kick that thing off that fast? I mean, you get what I'm saying here? Because some of these players, I mean, they have different styles. They have different approaches. And, and they're all just kind of thrown in together. And the high rollers tend to, like, run the show. So, anyway, it, it is an interesting thing to witness. And I encourage everybody to go to these things and, and uh, enjoy the workshops, you know. But as a learning experience to, like, try to improve your playing or something, Nah, they generally, you know, you might pick up a little something here or there, but it's not much, you know. Now, on the other side of the coin, let me tell you about a completely different type of workshop. So Cedar Hill is booked to play this festival. I think it was at the Rock Ranch in Georgia. I can't remember the town nearby. So they have this uh, bluegrass festival, pretty small festival, you know, eight, ten bands, that kind of thing. I remember it because on stage they had this little uh, miniature train, you know, like the kind you see at the zoo or something. They had this little miniature train and train track ran all the way around the audience and it would occasionally come by, you know, just like out of uh, the Steve Martin movie, The Jerk, that type of train where he was the engineer on that little train. They had this little mini train and it would come chugging along right in front of the stage at, well, I mean, it, the train had its own schedule. It didn't care about, you know, what song you were in the middle of. You might have been in the middle of a tender love ballad. And here comes this little choo-choo, choo-choo-choo-choo, and all these little kids riding on it, and a guy with his railroad hat, and, you know, this little locomotive. And it would just come chugging by. And I remember being on that stage and us breaking into train 45 every time the little train came by. And then as soon as it would go out of earshot, we would go back into what we were doing. You know, got to try to get some entertainment value out of this. But at that particular festival, it was one of those deals where the promoter says, hey, you know, we want to have you play at our festival. And we're like, great. You know, we're talking money, you know, like so many sets for so many dollars and whatever. Oh, and by the way, we're doing workshops. Um, you know, could Brad do a mandolin workshop and could Jimmy do a banjo workshop and blah, 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 blah. 
So, of course, we say yes. You always say yes to these things. And you might pick up an extra 50 bucks or whatever. So I go to that festival all prepared to give my little mandolin workshop. You know, they got an area laid out where, you know, I'm going to be there and it's on the flyer, whatever. And I, I'm, I go there about a half an hour early, got my little, got the books and little handouts and things I'm going to give to people. And I'm all prepared. And, oh, about five minutes till time. One guy comes wandering over there with his mandolin. And we start talking and stuff. That was my only participant. I had one guy. And I already knew this guy. We knew each other very well. We used to live about a half a mile from each other. And uh, we just sat there and picked and talked. It, we, I didn't really do a workshop because I only had one guy. You know, I think I gave him a copy of my little handouts and stuff, and we just shot the breeze. He was building mandolins at the time, and it was a complete wash. You know, so that's kind of the, you know, the, the big and the small of the workshop world. I did get paid. I think I made fifty bucks doing that. I don't know. It seems like I did. I have a feeling I would remember if I wasn't paid, you know? <laughs> anyway, so we just sat there and had a bull session, and no, nobody nobody came. It's because it was such a small festival. There probably were 250, 300, maybe 500 people throughout that day. It was just small. And, you know, most of the mandolin players that were there at the festival, they, they didn't want to hear me talk about the mandolin. They knew me, you know? They could see what I did every time I got on stage or whatever. And I've done them at, I don't know how many mandolin workshops I've done. I've done them at Southeastern Bluegrass Association meetings. I've done them at, a lot of times as a tag-on thing at a festival. And some of them, you know, there have been 25 people there. And sometimes there would be two people there. And, you know, it just depended. But over the years of doing these workshops, my mentality about what to do at the workshop began to change. Because what I discovered at these mandolin workshops is, and I'm, I'm imagining one in particular, where, okay, I'm going to do the mandolin workshop at 3 o'clock, and there are eight people sitting in chairs around me. They all have their mandolins, and they're all, and I know a couple of them. I see Charlie over there, and I see, wow, that's uh, Bob Nyes and Matt Mundy. I know these guys. They're good mandolin players. But these other people I don't know, these other five. Well, you know, a guy like Bob Nyes, he'd been playing for 25 years at that time. And then sitting right next to him is a guy that's been playing for 25 minutes. And so what do you present to these people that is of equal value to all of them? Or how can you give something so that every person gets up out of their chair at the end of it and says, wow, that was great because I learned this and this. And this other person, a, a more accomplished player goes, hey, I never thought of that. I never, uh, that's interesting. You know, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's a challenge to present something that is informative or even entertaining to everyone because you don't know who they are. Now, if the thing was advertised as a beginner mandolin workshop, it'd be easier, you know? Now, anybody could come and they could sit there, but they, they would know, well, he's going to go through beginner stuff. 
how to hold the pick, and you know, I like this kind of strap, or whatever. So, in order to prepare for these sorts of things, and I'm getting to what I dug out of the barn this morning, and there's a little bonus for you at the end of this, so hang here with me. In 1988, I was asked to do a workshop. The workshop I was just, just describing. It was going to be, you know, prior to a SEBA meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, and I estimated eight people maybe, which I think it was the number I had. But in advance of this and thinking that I really need to give everybody a little something, and remember, I've probably told you this, I was in the printing business. I had a printing company. I used to print the Southeastern Bluegrass Association newsletter, the SEBA Breakdown. First three years, every copy of that came off my AB Deck 360, 11 by 17 press. Used to typeset it, used to print it, shoot the halftones in the darkroom. Back, this was back in the dark ages, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, 89. So I had access to things like a copy machine and a little punch binding machine. So when I showed up to do my workshop, you know, the other guy, the banjo picker, he might just sit down and say, all right, everybody, uh, here, let me play that Blue Ridge Cabin Home. And he just plays it and he's got his guitar picking buddy there with it and they play it and it sounded really good. And then does anybody have any questions? You know, that sort of, that was the typical competition in the workshops. I looked at it differently. I looked at it as like, I'm going to give them something, a little book, a little booklet that has a whole lot of things covering a whole lot of different areas for absolute beginner all the way to the more advanced or, you know, a little something for everybody. And all I'm going to do is hand them out and go through it page by page and point out what's there and demonstrate a few little things, give them some ideas, food for thought, something they've never heard of or thought about. And they come away with something in their hand and they go, wow, that was, that was pretty good. You know, this thing here on page eight, I never thought about that. So here's what I'm doing in this bonus episode. I found my copy of my little workshop handout. Let me count the pages. One, two, three. 11, 12, 13, I think, 14, 15, 16, 17 pages. It's a little 17-page booklet, which I have scanned and created, put, them, put this 1988 workshop handout into a PDF file that you can download. And here's the way I'm going to do it. I am going to post the PDF on my Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. So if you are a patron, you can just go there and get the file. Now, I haven't done it yet, uh, but I'll do it before I put this show up. So very soon, it will be available over there on the patrons page where you can just download this. Secondarily, for anybody else who is not a patron, and I do encourage you to become a patron of the show, it really helps keep this thing going and growing, as they say. If you don't feel like going over to Patreon and you know doing all that, here's another way you can get it. 
I am going to put a link to this workshop booklet on the show notes page for this episode. So if you're listening on iTunes or something like that, go to grasstalkradio.com, slide down that long list of 150-something episodes, and look for this episode. I think it's bonus, I want to say bonus 10. I, I'm, I don't have it in front of me. It's the latest bonus episode, and it'll, it'll say something about workshops. You click on that link, and that'll take you to the show notes page for this bonus episode. And on there will be the usual stuff, the player. You can just play it right there on the page. There will be a link right there which will take you over to my payhip.com store. And I will upload this PDF to the store. Now, I don't have an easy way to make things just free on the store. They want you to put a price on everything, like a dollar or $10 or whatever. However, they do have an option that says pay what you want. So I'm going to set it as pay what you want. So, in order for you to get the little booklet, go to grasstalkradio.com, slide down to this episode, click that. There will be a link there, which will take you to my the, this document over on my store. And you can set the price at $0 if you feel like it. Or you can put in there, you know, $10,000 if you want to. Or you can do it for 0 and then follow along with me here in this bonus episode. And then if you, at the end of this, after the fact, think, wow, you know, that was pretty cool. I think I'm going to throw the guy a couple of bucks. You can go back and do it again. And this time, chip in three bucks or five bucks or whatever, you know. Like, give the guy who put on the workshop a little tip. But I want you to, to uh, right now, before you finish listening to this episode, because this is now we've had the first part of this episode, I want you to pause this bonus episode of the podcast and go get the thing. Go get the PDF. You can print it out or you can just put it on your tablet. You can do whatever you want to with it because I'm going to turn through the pages in the rest of this little episode and just talk about what's on that page and why, you know, just, I'm just going to discuss the book and it'd be easier if you had it in front of you. Okay. And then I may come back to some of these things later in some future episodes and talk about some of these specific things, but I want you to be able to see this document. So go get it. You don't have to pay. You can, if you want to. And, you know, I do appreciate the tips, but you don't have to. So Hit pause, go get it, and then come back here and let's continue. All right, so now, and of course, this is mostly for mandolin players, but you know what? There is information in here, as you will find, even if you play banjo or guitar or bass or whatever you play, there is information in, in this workshop that is appropriate for you. It's not just mandolin. It is a lot of mandolin stuff, but... It's not all about mandolin. So let us go through the document, the um, 
which thank goodness I found my one remaining copy of this thing in my barn in a box yesterday, cleaning out the barn. So if you got your document there, let's look at the cover page. At the beginning, at the top, I got to tell you about this. It says Jeff Johnson. And then it has a little arrow and it says, Jeff doesn't know I stole his music paper. Don't say nothing. And let me explain this. And if you look down at the bottom, in the lower left, it says copyright 1988 Laird and Associates, style number ST01. Well, because I had the print shop and because I was into music, I had this brilliant idea that I would produce um, music notation staff paper, pads of 50, books, whatever. I was going to make staff paper. So I started printing up very, a typeset and printed up various types of staff paper and was peddling those. I, you know, if you came to a Cedar Hill show, you could buy, you know, pads of, you know, five line staff paper printed by me and stuff like that. But what I did, uh, Christmas of 1980, I was probably 87, all the guys in the band got their own customized pads of this. I printed up 500 sheets, you know, for Bob, Jimmy, Jeff, and Fred and put their name on top and printed them and padded them and wrapped them up and gave them to them for Christmas. Well, I had a, a few extra pads of Jeff's and uh, so that this has been my music notation paper for years. I got still got a few pads of Jeff Johnson personalized staff paper, <laughs> you know, but it was a nice Christmas present. We would, it was tradition in Cedar Hill for you know, at the last practice before Christmas to always like bring a little something for the guys. My typical thing would be to swing by a liquor store and buy a couple of six packs of weird beer and then shuffle them. Like you'd have a six pack, like there are four guys that I'm going to give a gift to. I would buy four six packs of weird beer and then I would shuffle them up so that each one got a six pack with like four different kinds of beer in it. You know, it's like, hey, have you ever tried, you know, dead guy ale or whatever, you know, that was a, you know, something you could do quick on the way to practice. Sometimes I would put a little more thought into it. Like, like the thing here with the, <laughs> uh, the, uh, printed staff paper, you know, did all kind of things, but it was interesting each year. Uh, I have some of my most memorable Christmas gifts have come to me from, uh, members of the band at that final rehearsal before Christmas. And one in particular I'll mention is our bass player, Fred McIsaac, once gave me a set of Gemsbach horns <laughs> mounted. It was like four feet long. These some kind of weird antelope or something from Africa. He found them at a pawn shop or junk, you know, junk sale or something. And he gave me this set of horns. It's hanging right out here in the barn. I can see them now. Uh, that was one of the more weird ones. I, I got a really nice wind-up, um, um, like you turn the crank and it would charge the battery in this little lantern. The duck gave me that one year, a little crank-up lantern. It's great. I'm still using it 20 years later. Amazing. You never have to put batteries in it. Just turn the crank. And it's good for kids to do when you're at a festival. You go, hey, Jackson, how about give that thing about 100 cranks? You know, that kind of thing. It was fun to... Uh, you know, give each other gifts. I had a very strange gift one time. A, a guy, I won't mention his name, but he was sort of our sound man. And he showed up at the last rehearsal before Christmas one year. It's probably back in 85 or so. 
He showed up and he's handing out the presents. He brought us all a present, a little wrap gift and everything. I just set it beside my case. Thanks a bunch, man. I sure do appreciate that. And uh, when I left that night, I took it home and uh, I just put it under the Christmas tree. I didn't think to open it. It was kind of late by the time I got home, didn't open it. And uh, so midday on Christmas day, I finally remembered that, oh yeah, that present there, I opened it up and it was a little box and inside the box, I opened it up and there was a bag of what looked like chopped parsley or something. I don't know, I didn't know what this was. It was like a bag of like grass clippings or something. I open the bag and I take a whiff of it and I'm like, holy crap, I know what that is. It'd been nice if the guy told me that he was giving me that. I had no idea I was transporting this, uh, you know, contraband. And I had no idea it was in a Christmas present. And frankly, I wasn't really into that. And so I gave it to a friend of mine who, who was really into that. Anyway, so huh, it's weird stuff. But let's now, I need to quit beating around the bush. Let's talk about this thing. I'm going to go through it real fast on the cover. The cardinal rules of picking. Number one, be in tune. And by that, I mean tune your mind as well as your instrument. Get yourself in tune, too. Number two, very important, don't be chicken. Because if you don't take chances, you'll never accomplish anything. Don't be so chicken. Number three, and I didn't invent this, but it's great advice. If you screw up, do it twice and the world will think you meant to do it that way. Okay, so page two, this is, I'm not even gonna go over this, how I wrote the tabs, that page. That's just for, I knew there might be somebody in the audience who didn't understand tablature. In fact, one mandolin player in particular was a wonderful um, Russian and classical player by the name of Charlie Rappaport, and he was sitting there in my workshop and I don't think he read tab, but he read standard notation. So this was helpful to him. And so if you don't know anything about mandolin tab, you can see that little handwritten explanation of how to read tab. Next page, it says two string roll. This was the first thing I did. I demonstrated um, a little bit about, I was trying to get across the point of what is syncopation because a lot of people throw the term syncopation around just to mean any kind of oddball rhythm, and I don't look at it that way. So if you study this page, you mandolin or banjo players, you'll see what I'm talking about. And in this particular example, which you get down the two lines of tab down at the bottom, it says, you can get a neat syncopation by playing groups of three notes, accenting one of the three each time. This example accents the third note. So da 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 da. This regular series of notes produces an accent every three notes, which, when repeated enough, eventually lands on the downbeat. Blah 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 blah. So, I was demonstrating this stuff and showing them about how to do this little two-string roll, because you know your banjo players are always playing with three fingers, and there are ways to kind of imitate that a little bit, and it's pretty simple to do as a two-string roll. You just alternate between two strings. So go to the next page. It says, so what can you do with it? And there, for you mandolin players, 
I give some examples of how you might move these little two-note rolls around. So try this little thing out. It's really cool. Kind of the in-the-mood lick. At the bottom, it says, student, teach thyself. Moving right along, now you get to the page that says, Flist, Franz Liszt, high-tech digital secret weapon adapted by B. Laird. And by the way, these pictures you're looking at, I drew all of those myself, looking at my own hands and sketching them out. I told you I wanted to be a cartoonist when I was a kid. So I would draw my hand a lot, you know. Just, it, was, it was a nice model. It was very handy, you know, to have around. So I want to explain this, and I've been told by my wife that I should make a video of how to do these hand exercises. And the reason I put hand exercises into this workshop is because every player at every level could probably use some handy hand exercises. Because whatever level you are at, if you increase the control and dexterity of your fingers and hands and the strength and the, you know, flexibility, your playing at whatever level it is will improve. So I taught how to do these hand exercises. So instead of the eight people sitting around me all flamming away on a G chord, I had them just, you know, holding their hands up and doing these little hand exercises. I just wanted them to understand how to do each one. Very important that you take a look where it says triple mode of practice. You should know the three modes of practice for each exercise. And I'm just going to talk about exercise one right now, the fist. The fist is simple. You make a very gentle fist with your hand. And then you, for the first mode, you open it outwards fast and hold. So you go from a closed fist to completely open, spread fingers as fast as you can, then hold. And then gently bring it back. And then do that again. Open and slowly close. That's mode one, the outward opening mode. Mode two is the opposite of that. You close inward fast. So you've got your hands, your fingers spread apart. Like you, well, I don't know, your hand. You just got your hand there vertically and you close them fast. So you're using different muscles to close the fist as fast as you can close it and hold. Then mode three is the open and close in one smooth move. So start with a fist, not clenching, just a fist shape. Open, close, open, close, open, close, open, close, like that. That's the third mode. So you want to do each mode, and I recommend that you do each mode 10 times with each hand. And if your hands get tired, stop. Relax. Shake your hands out. Okay. Number two is the karate claw. I think it's self-explanatory. You're just bending different joints to form the claw. Okay. So that's number two, and you do that in triple mode. Both hands. Numero three, the palm caress. Let me explain this one. This one, you simply lay your hand, either one or both, out flat, and then you take the tip of each finger, one by one, in the picture, it's the little finger, but you could use any of the fingers. You take the tip of the finger and you bend it over and reach as far as you can across the palm 
and you pull it back towards the base of that finger. As if there were a little BB on your palm and you're rolling it toward your finger. So you're reaching toward your wrist and you're caressing the palm back towards the base of the finger. And you do that with each finger. And you will really feel some tendons stretching in your wrist as you reach forward. Now, I wouldn't worry too much about your other fingers. If they need to follow along to do it, let them follow. This shouldn't be torture, but just take each finger and act like you're reaching for something with that finger and pull it back across the palm. Then, as you'll see, there are two arrows, one toward the wrist and one away. You do it in both directions. So you don't really do the triple mode with this. You just palm caress towards the wrist and away from the wrist. So you start, you curl your finger up, touch the palm, and brush lightly away, tracing a line on your palm. You're pushing away from your finger, extending. Okay, so that's palm caress. Turning the page. Uh, number four, the Vulcan. And I'm showing the classic Vulcan pose there. But you do this in triple mode. So you open rapidly and hold. You close rapidly and hold. And you open close. Open close. And this is not explained in the book, but you should do it with each pair of fingers. So first and second finger, do it. It's a scissoring motion, which is the weakest muscle in your hand is that the scissor closing muscle is the weakest muscle in your hand. But it's very important for getting some extension on an instrument. So do each pair. Do one, two, open and close. Two, three, open and close. That's the Vulcan. And three, four, open and close in the triple mode. All right, number five, circles. You're holding your hand out, relaxed, just palm down. And spread your fingers apart and draw circles going clockwise with the tip of each finger. And then when you've done all the fingers, go counterclockwise. Number six is over and under, and which I think is pretty self-explanatory here. The one I've drawn is to hold your hand out, palm down, and take your first and third finger, your index and ring, and lower them below your middle finger and touch them together and then raise them above and touch them together. So you practice that, trying to draw a circle. Each, your index and ring are each drawing a half circle on either side of the stationary middle finger. It's very tough. If you get pretty good at that, try it with your ring and, I'm sorry, your middle finger and your pinky and leave your ring stationary. If you can even do that, I would be surprised. But you might be able to. And again, I'm cautioning you, if your hands get cramped, raise them high over your head because it lowers the blood pressure in your hands. And relax. Don't do this too. I mean, if you don't, you, you think when you're playing your instrument, you're exercising your hands, but you're going to do things with these exercises that you've never done on your instrument. And when you get good at it, that'll allow you to do things you've never done on your instrument. That's the idea here. Number seven, I've turned the page, the little Noah's Ark at the top, fingertip arcs. Pretty simple, you can see from the drawing there. you just opening and closing like a little pinching motion between your thumb and each finger. And it's triple mode. You're in quickly and then relax. In quickly and relax. In, out quickly and relax. Out and then in, out. I don't care if you do out, in or in, out. Doesn't matter. 
Number eight, the thumb workout. Just going to work the thumb. You're going to draw squares with the tip of your thumb. Just try to draw nice squares in both directions and then do circles in both directions. Work that thumb a little bit. Thrill seekers, try it with your toes. Number nine, circles and squares with pairs. Now this, you lay your hands out flat, palm down, and just pick a pair of fingers, raise them to the top of an imaginary circle, and each side traces one half of the circle. They meet at the top and they meet at the bottom, 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock, up and down. Do all the pairs. See if you can make circles that anything that resembles a circle. All right, turning the page. That was enough finger, <clears throat> finger exercises. Tired of your pinky being so useless? This is the finger substitution idea. Um, I got uh, stuck in the index finger one time, catfish, and I actually have pictures of that catfish, uh, which I'm probably not going to scan and put on the site. But basically, this is this is something I've been suggesting to students for a long time. If you you know most mandolin players, banjo players, tend to play everything, most things with index, second, and ring, and pinky doesn't get used as much. Well, all you do is substitute. So if you can play old Joe Clark with your first, second, and third finger, play it the same exact thing with your second, third, and fourth finger. That's all it is. Read, read there. It'll tell you how to do it. Try it. it and it's surprisingly easy. If you ever cut your finger and you got a big Band-Aid on your finger or something, you will automatically start doing that. So, you, you know, it's pretty easy for your brain to go, okay, just move the gear lever over one, and now these are my fingers. One, two, three. So try that out, the pinky substitution, finger substitution exercise. Then the next thing, which I'm not going to talk a whole lot about here, was I got to talking about time signatures because most bluegrassers are just playing, you know, eight notes to the bar in 2-4 cut time all the time, and they don't play a whole lot of 6-8-10, so I just did a little thing here explaining 6-8 and gave a few example tunes, um, green sleeves, and a little, little bit of Bach, and the old Irish washerwoman. This is just mandolin tab in 6-8 time. Then, turning the page, we get the good all-purpose lick. I just uh, wrote um, an ascending lick and showed how to play it in a closed position. For those people who have never ventured up the neck, if you take, you know, the lick, the first lick, and then you go down the third line and you try that lick, you see that you can play the exact same thing anywhere on the neck. That was all I was trying to get across to people. And then I also showed it how you could descend with it. So that was it for that. And then practice smart. These are tips for practice. I'm going to go through them real fast. Number one, make a written practice plan. And then examples. I give you can read it. You've got the document. Number two, try your hand at reading music written for other instruments. Learn from a basic in instrument method book. Learn the names of the notes. If you're a mandolin player, buy a flute book. You can play that stuff too. Learn to read the notes. Get the beginning flute book one or trumpet or doesn't matter. Just learn to read. So I'd, I'd pick something with treble clef if you're a mandolin player. Like flute. All right, number three, always hang out. This is so important. I think I did an episode, Who You Hang Out With Counts. Uh, all about this. Always hang out 
and pick with pickers better than you. It does rub off. Number four, keep a picture of Bill Monroe in your case. And at that point in the workshop, I would open my case and show my picture of Bill Monroe inside the case. Five, write down ideas, keep a notebook, pile, etc. And thank goodness I have done so, or otherwise I wouldn't even have this book in my hand anymore if I just threw it out. I wonder how many people that I gave this to that day in 1988 still have it. Huh, probably not many. Turning the page, number six, these two, six and seven, are corresponding. Always play tunes you know well, concentrating on clean, precise notes. I'm, I've always been working on that because I've generally been kind of lousy at that. Uh, seven, always play tunes you don't know well, concentrating on getting to step six. Eight, enjoy the mandolin or quit. Uh, nine, if your fingers or ears hurt, quit. I should have said stop because I don't mean quit forever. In number eight, I do mean quit. Just quit. But in nine, I really meant stop. Just stop, you know. If your fingers hurt, stop for a little while at least. I'll let you read the rest of those. Um, 13, oh, 12 is good. Don't be so darn self-critical. You know, if I was very self-critical, I would listen to my own podcast and I'd say, man, I can't put that on. I can't put that out to the public. What an idiot. I sound like a complete idiot. Luckily, I'm not so self-critical that I won't put it out there. And you shouldn't be so self-critical about your singing or your playing or anything else. Turning the page. As John Hartford says, style is based on limitations. My expansion, limitations are based on laziness and a closed mind. You can read the rest of that stuff there. Turning the page. The pentatonic brain. I just did a... In this workshop, a five-minute explanation of what is a pentatonic scale and how it can be used. Essentially, this one page became half of the book, Mandolin Masterclass. And it became about six of six or seven of my mandolin instruction videos. But it's all it all came from this one page. Next page, a few thoughts about picks. See, I'm trying to give something to everybody. Number one, always carry a few. <laughs> Two. Tortoiseshell, comment on that. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And then the end, a $100 guitar gets treated like crud, but a $3 pick you guard with your life. Next page is a Bach piece. Bach two-part invention number four. And I simply put this in there to say to people, do you know what this even is? Do you, can, can you read this? Could you decipher this? It's in 3-8 time. Allegro vivace. What is all this? Just as encouragement for people to try to learn to decipher and read standard music notation because there's so much of it out there. You know, you buy the Coles 1000 fiddle tunes. If you can't at least decode it, you can't play it. So that was all it was, and I played a little bit of this thing for him, just the top line, just a little bit. And uh, I've got a recording of me and my friend Roland Austin playing this piece. Well, I'll just play it right now. Here's me and Roland playing this piece, which I forced all of my students to learn both parts of this, and we played it together as a, as a means of getting them familiar with reading standard notation. And it's a great one because it's in the key of D minor. It's a really easy mandolin key. The trills, I'll tell you, are tough. I'm not a trill guy, you know. So 
I would just play streams of uh, continuous eighth notes or maybe trill, uh, maybe tremolo rather than that trill. But you can see those uh, mordants and trills and things notated by Bach. Uh, do what you will with that. It's just to remind you, you know, learn a little bit about how to read standard music notation. Here's the tune. Here's a little bit of me and Roland playing that tune. Okay, then you'll see the how to recognize a type one mound player and type two mound player. And I have of late decided that I'm gonna, I'm gonna draw a second version of this cartoon because I think there are two more types now out there. So just stand by. I'm gonna draw the other two types because now I think there are actually four types of mandolin players. There are probably more than that. But I'm gonna make a new version of this cartoon. Uh, with the type 3s and the type 4s shown for your pleasure, which will be coming in the future. I hope you enjoyed this little mandolin or music workshop and that uh, I hope that you will visit my website at bradleylaird.com and enjoy all the uh, fabulous uh, instructional material and that if you'd like to support the show, you can become a Grass Talk Radio supporter and chip in a little, or you can become a Patreon patron over at patreon.com slash Bradley Laird, or you can just buy some of my stuff. Just go to the store and, you know, get yourself some Clawhammer banjo videos or download the Flint Hill Scrolls or whatever. Okay, everybody have a wonderful week, and I hope you enjoyed this little bonus workshop episode.